What's up, everyone? It is 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon, which means you're tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News, where we explain marijuana laws so you can change them. Today, we're joined by Dale Hunt from Plant and Plant and Plant and Planet Law Firm. <laughs> Sorry about that. We're going to talk about intellectual properties for the cannabis industry. So let's just get right into it. How are you guys doing? Happy hey. Sunday. Happy Sunday, everybody. Happy New 46. Oh, yes, the 46. Uh, and then happy, who's going to be leading the Department of Justice? Who's going to be leading the Department of Agriculture? Who's going to be leading um, uh, Treasury Department? All these figureheads in the administration that, you know, if the vice president-elect is so pro-cannabis that she was one of the lead sponsors of the MORE Act, how good are the next four years going to be? And we were just talking in the green room before we went live, Georgia. Mm. What's going to go on with Georgia? Maybe. That's what I'm talking about, brother. Uh, uh, Dell, you're on mute, by the way. But uh, um, in case you didn't know, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, because if Georgia, these two Senate seats that are, because how it works, folks, is uh, uh, you know the process. People wonder why legalization hasn't happened. Why isn't marijuana legal? But the majority of citizens want it legal because the American system is the worst paperwork job in the world. Like. It's a three system, and if you could have one guy like Mitch McConnell block your paperwork, it's not going to get to the top. It's not going to get signed. But if we get the Senate with an all Democrat agenda, uh, it's going to be easier to push paperwork, you know, like the Borak through. Or judges, they were able to, you know, sit and then block judges because you know the advice and consent of the Senate, and they wouldn't advise nor consent to them, and that's why they were able to get that uh, Amy. Colleen Barrett? What's the, the new um, Supreme Court justice's name? Dale, are you, do you know who the new Supreme Court justice's name is? Amy Coney Barrett. All right. Uh, Dale, um, thanks for coming on the show, man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Plant and Planet? Great. I'd love to. So, yeah, um, I'm Dale Hunt. I'm a plant scientist and a patent attorney. And um, I was a partner in some big firms for uh, the first, I guess, 22 years of my practice. And then I uh, finally started my own firm a couple of years ago. Um, it's called Plant and Planet because we work on things that have to do with um, certainly agriculture, including cannabis, but we also work on other things that, that uh, make the planet better, like we do water purification, uh, natural uh, or alternative energy, um, natural products, a lot of things like that. And then we also uh, help our clients get patent protection and license it all around the world. So it's kind of a planet-wide uh, approach to things too. You have to be especially excited about this upcoming like legislation and whatnot, just to be hands-on. Cause as we we're talking in the green room, you also kind of do a transitional thing too. people in the, 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 the shadow market, black market, traditional and help them come to the uh, regular world, I guess. Yeah. I work with a lot of people who um, I would say are veterans of the unregulated market or the traditional market. And um, as they're trying to find their own kind of seat at the table in the regulated market where they see, they see money flying around all over the place and none of it's landing on them, right? And so I work with them to find ways of uh, taking advantage of the legal system as it exists and uh, protecting what they, what they have and finding legal, legitimate ways of having that make money for them. Yeah, the legal and legitimate ways to make money are important when it comes to your rights. Speaking of, uh, if in the IP space and cannabis, considering cannabis 
you know, it's still a schedule one substance. How many limitations does cannabis or cannabis brands face in trying to protect their IP? Well, that's a great question. And it is one of the things that, that confuses a lot of people, even lawyers. Um, but a, a lot of people in the industry get, get confused about this. And it starts from the fact that um, there's one uh, administrative agency in the federal government, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, that issues two kinds of IP that are both important to cannabis. There's patents, of course, and trademarks. And I'd say more people have had contact with the trademark side of the, uh, of the USPTO, and they've been summarily rejected. If they admit that, that their mark is going to cover anything that has THC in it or anything that touches the plant, they're mm. going to get rejected. So um, cookies, so for example, the cookies yeah. brand, do they even have IP? You know, it's a good question. I haven't studied that particular one. Well, let me put it this way. Anybody with a brand has IP. They may not yeah. have federal IP. Because if you have a brand and you've got some name recognition, you've got what are called common law trademark rights. And those just come from use and from, rec from recognition association of your goods or your services with a particular source. Um, common law rights can be harder to enforce, but I've seen them effectively enforced. Uh, in addition, you can get state trademark rights for things that you can't protect uh, federally. Hmm. Not all states will do it, but but some do. But that that's the interesting thing is that, you know, you can get federal protection for, uh, say, hemp or for things that are legal to use between states in commerce is the term they use. Uh, that kind of federal protection is available. And then the other part of this that is interesting is when people deal with that kind of rejection from the USPTO for a trademark application, they think that that means that, that patents are also not available. They think that patents are, are in, they're ineligible for patents because it's, it's illegal subject matter. Mm. And what is really interesting is that while getting qualifying for, for trademark protection requires legal use in commerce, there's no requirement for legal use or any kind of use for a patent. And getting a patent just requires that whatever you're saying you invented um, actually qualifies as being new and that it's not obvious and that it's adequately described. And if it meets the, the, the criteria for, for patentability, it's not, it doesn't have to be legal at all. Well, so I can get a plant patent right now on my cannabis. Yeah, yeah, there are, there are issued plant patents. We've got a bunch of them in the process. Uh, there are patent plant patents that have issued. There are also lots of patents on other things like, um, you know, different modes of extraction, uh, different um, ways of processing, different products that contain um, THC or CBD um, or other cannabinoids. So it's wide open on the patent side as long as you meet the requirements. And, and that's the thing that, that does confuse people is that same federal agency two different sets of rules because they operate under two different statutes with different sets of requirements. So with patent and trademark, <clears throat> like I know uh, Dabstars, I'm not familiar with them out here in uh, Washington, but uh, Dabstars, they start out as a t-shirt brand, uh, kind of like what Cookies was doing, you know, a clothing line. We made me yeah. that they, you know, they trademarked that. And I, and I know when Dabstars in the beginning was trademarking it, they were having issues again because they're cannabis related, but um, they were like, look, we're just t-shirts. We don't do grow. We don't, we don't do nothing. And, and so they worked around that and now they're actually involved in, into product branding. Uh, but they didn't start out as a, a manufacturer of it. Uh, is that like a workaround? Do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of companies that if they want, let's say they've got a brand and they know that they have aspirations for, you know, when when there's a nationwide legality legalization, um, that they want to have a nationwide brand, uh, but they know that they can't get a brand on um, brand protection for anything that touches the plant right now. Um, they will look for the things that they are doing that are legal that they can associate with that brand and they'll get federal protection of those things and then they'll get at, at least common law protection and often state protection for the things that they can't protect federally. It's more complicated than I'm making it sound and, and anybody who is looking to develop a strategy for this really ought to consult with a lawyer who does this. Yeah. But um, but that's the, that's the essence of it is that you can kind of um, create a, a footprint in, in the general area associated with with the products that this company makes but you you do it, it you, you do have to, to tread carefully so say that i make the mac uh miracle alien cookies uh mac capulator let's call it uh, or catapulter i'm not sure how to i've never seen the word catapult pronounced but um so if i made the mac seed and i'm just like selling this seed like a banshee and people are using that seed in crosses uh can i then describe that that type of new cross that i've made uh and get a plant patent on it yeah if you do, if you do it um fast enough if you do it before it's been commercially available for too long so when when you make a, a new plant variety by making a cross so you do a cross then you do a selection and you, you feel no hunt you might want a clone yeah. only you know yep but once you've got something that's stable either it's stable because you're only cloning it and you like the phenotype and you're cloning it, or you've done enough um, back crossing or inbreeding to get a stable seed line, then you'd define that as a, as a new plant variety. Um, having the patent office accept that it's new is usually not a challenge unless mm. there's evidence of public availability. And so you can lose your novelty either by really it not being something that you invented True, but think about like how fair. rich, but how rich is the plant in itself and its genetic expression? And so like, you know, there's well, no way that that phenotype existed before. Uh, I mean, that's, like, that's, yeah. yeah, you're exactly right. A lot of people think, wow, I don't know if what I have is really new enough to qualify for a patent. And the fact is the, the, the patent office, when it comes to plant varieties, they accept the fact that any cross with all, you know, 30,000 genes or more, between two parents, it's you're shuffling a deck of 30,000 pairs of cards. Yeah. What you get from that shuffling event is going to be new. And the patent office doesn't really push back on that as long as you attest that you really did the breeding and the crossing, or the, 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 the crossing, you did the cross and the selection. Um, the only way, so the, the real significant way that you can risk losing your right to patent is if you wait too long to patent before, if you're selling for too long before you patent. So depending on what you try to patent, um, let's suppose that you are um, that you're only selling harvested flour. So you've got you've got a great clone, you've got it in some nurseries, but it's all protected by agreement. Nobody's ever you've never sold the plant, right? And you're only selling harvested flour. Then that plant hasn't lost its so-called novelty because it's never been publicly available. And making the flour available doesn't make the plant available. A lot of people think that that sounds kind of hokey. How could that really be? But I've spoken with the supervising patent examiner at, at USPTO about that specific scenario. And he said, so, look, if, if, what you're, if what you're claiming is the plant, 
and it hasn't been available, then it's still new. Then that just makes me think that mother, all right, if I'm going to do the balance sheet and I do it, I mean, like if I'm going to do the balance sheet for like a, an operator and it's going to try to be vertical on that balance sheet is going to be this item right there regarding the IP. And then you're going to have like vaults for your mother room to a certain extent. It's like, well, do you have seeds for that? Oh, hell no, we don't have seeds for that. You know, like it, because putting those seeds out there would in theory jeopardize your patent rights. Yeah, unless you file first. I mean, it's easy enough to just file first, and and um, it's less complicated and has it, it, it's relatively easy to get a filing date if you're working with somebody who knows what they're doing. It's also easy for somebody to screw it up if they don't know what they're doing. But um, but yeah, I mean, the, the as valuable as these things are, especially a, a special variety, you don't want to mess around with with. Um, with, with yeah. risking your patent rights. Yeah, if you had like sour, yeah. but was it always this way? So like, could we have gotten a patent? I mean, probably expired by now because it's from the mid nineties on like OG Kush or Sour D then? Yeah, I think the thing is back then people didn't, they weren't very inclined to trust the federal government and everybody just kind of assumed yeah. that you couldn't get right federal rights from the USPTO. But really, if you look at it, USPTO has been granting cannabis related patents all the way back to the forties. And there weren't very many of them, and there weren't any on plants. But that was—I think—that was really just because people weren't weren't trying to get them. When 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 uh, a patent for cannabis is done, like for the flower, is it like the DNA is actually like extrapolated, and like this is your reference for what's going to be in the court of law? Yeah, a lot of people ask that, and and there are some companies that do really good DNA work and are good at uh, doing a. a a whole sequencing or a DNA fingerprint of a plant, but you actually don't have to submit DNA uh, evidence of any kind to get a plant patent or a utility patent on a plant. If you have it, it can be helpful, but it's not essential. So really what you do when you apply for a patent, for a plant patent, and this goes back to the fact that this, the patent statute was started in the 30s before most of these higher tech ways of describing a plant were available. Really what you do is you just describe the cross. You actually take some pictures of the plant and then you describe the phenotype really thoroughly. You describe all kinds of things about what you can see, the, the, the botanical features. And, and this drives some of my clients nuts because they didn't ever take a botany class. They loved the plant, but they didn't learn all the terminology. That would be yet, hilarious. I mean, yeah. Dale, I don't mean to cut you off, but just for the, view, the viewers and the listeners at home, think about all the hypotheticals on that. It's like, uh, I like on uh, paragraph 7A, you described it as very terpy. Can you like, can you elongate that terpiness aspect? It's like, well, it had this dank aroma. Okay, again, well, oh my God. description, dank. Uh, it's, it's a, that's exactly right, though. I mean, some of the people, I mean, the people I work with, they know the plant as well as anybody does yeah. and they love the plant and they could describe it in ways that people would understand the description right but mm. but it's not technical enough for the patent office and so well, we have to drag them through the deep end okay. of botany stuff it has to get technical because like like to, to tom's point i mean i can just like skunk we learned that they don't have skunks in england but you know when you drive past a huge farm you smell a skunk smell you're like it's either weed or a skunk Right. You know, couldn't you just be like, right. smells like horse's ass on a midsummer's day? Is there no like <laughs> funny shit like that? And well, I yeah, I've heard I've somebody I've I've seen one that's all I've got the best cat piss weed ever, and yeah. it's like okay, um, the one one yeah. way that is kind of standardized and relatively accessible is that 
I think a lot of states require now a certificate of analysis, and those are pretty standardized. Yeah. And that'll give you a list of the of the cannabinoids and their their uh, abundance, and the terpenes and their abundance as a, usually as a, as a function of dry weight. And we will submit something like that, and that is helpful. But although the examiners still ask in a ridiculous amount of detail on the botanical description, just because that's the the tradition for the plant patent statute. Uh, Nicholas Wigard asks, uh, what makes a uh, brand proprietary? Well, it that's a good question. It part of it comes from exclusive use. You know, if if I'm using the same brand on my on my product that three other people are, then none of us are going to really have a proprietary position on that. Um, that's why people file for tra federal trade pr trademark protection if it's available is they, they need to show that they were the first to use it, at least the first among the people who are applying for the federal rights. And then the federal rights give you a proprietary position nationwide, even if you haven't used the mark in those places. But let's suppose you've got people in four really distant areas of the country from each other, and they're all using a, the same or a similar mark. But, you know, let's say one's in, I don't know, Montana, one's in San Diego, one's in Florida, one's in Maine. And they're, they don't have any of the same customers. Let's say it's all local sales. The internet has kind of broken down those assumptions. But, but not for cannabis, yeah. though. For cannabis, That's though, true. you have them because of the illegality. So you know they're all, if, if local can be defined state as local. statewide use, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in those cases, um, in it, if there's a lot of prior use, then they're all entitled because of their, their, um, their common law rights they're entitled to their the, the, the brand ownership that they've established, the brand recognition they've established in their local market and in a zone of natural expansion. But they're gonna have a hard time establishing rights for a nationwide brand unless A, it's legal, and B, they were the first to use it. And what's complicated further about that is when they legalized hemp with the far, passage of the Farm Bill, a lot of people who'd been using certain brands on hemp rush to file trademark applications and you'd think okay well whoever's been using it the longest ought to win well nobody could claim an earlier date of use than the first legal date of use so they all have the same Ooh. earliest date of use it's a, wow it's I'm, I'm not even quite sure how they're going to sort that one out. well it's not because there's no mass blue dream lawsuits right so like all these states get legal no, because the there was time. no legal use until that particular right technically time. it never existed uh, for whatever reason Right, the trademark well, has to have that, yeah, the legal. Yeah, unit. but I, let's let's use uh, an example from one of the viewers that is is embarking on something like creating the a miracle in alien cookies, uh, you know, popularly known as the Max strain. So, like they're they're using a hammer toe line and a duck foot cross with Freak Show, and he's gotten permission to use from Freak Show. Let's hope that that is legally correct. But Freak Show and duck duck so. uh, this 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 what is it called? Uh, the duck foot crossed. They create a, a, a plant that does not look like weed. I mean, it kind of looks like weed when it's flowering, but if you were walking past it, you wouldn't say that's marijuana because the, the trademark leaf has been turned into this weird kind of almost looks like a fern. Uh, and, yeah. and because of that's such an interesting uh, you know, phenotype that's out there, uh, if you crossed something with it, and it has a different expression, like Purple Freak Show or something. You know, you cross it with a GDP, uh, and then that works. Would I then, uh, or, or would he be able to uh, start the process of uh, filing a plant patent? 
Yeah, and, and this is a really important thing, and it, it might get a little bit complicated, but it's such an important point I want to make it. You, you can qualify for a patent if you create something new and original, even if you started with somebody else's material. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you can legally use it, because let's suppose that you didn't get the rights from, from Freak Show to do that cross, um, then, uh, then even if you even if you can qualify for a patent, you you still might have an issue with the owner of the, the freak show. Legality, another legality section of it. Like, like yes, you created it, yeah. but yet you still owe freak show another 10% or some sort of agreement that says it can go on the market. Yeah, and this is an analysis that we talk about with a lot of our clients. There's a difference between so-called patentability, which is your right to get a patent, and so-called freedom to operate, which is mm. your right to actually use your technology. Because, you know, I might, I might make some new product, some new, um, you know, let's say something that grows hair out of two different things that are patented. And if I don't have permission to use those patented things, then I could still qualify for my composition because it does some, it's new and it does something pretty cool, but I would still need a license from them to be able to use it myself or sell it to people. So um, or getting a patent doesn't mean you can use it. Well, what if, what, could I do this? Uh, what if I didn't make that new proprietary thing until 15 years after the patent was uh, identified? <laughs> and then they sue me and I go, I'm your Huckleberry. And then I just try to twist them up into a lawsuit until uh, the oh patent expires, God. you know, five years of litigation. I want to depose your mom, you know, it's like, objection. Oh, we're going to go to talk to a judge again, aren't we? And uh, just well, channel my inner former litigator. And uh, 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 yeah, is that a strategy? Right? Like, if if suddenly their patent is expired because they only last, uh, how long do they last exactly? They last twenty years from the filing date. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you can. Th that's that's sadly not uncommon that people will um, they will make a calculation about when it is they can start infringing. Now, of yeah. course, if you start infringing when there's five years left, it, you could drag out the litigation. You still be on the hook for the five years of infringement ah. before it expired. Oh, wow. but, but, you know, it, so it, part of it depends on how well uh, prepared the patent owner is to actually withstand the litigation. And I, correct. I encourage people to look at getting insurance for that kind of thing so that they don't have to derail their whole business to just to do that. Because Yeah. Yeah. What a, I, uh, I missed that. What'd you say? Uh, I said the that litigation is very expensive. But then uh, Miggy has a question. So. Oh no, I was agreeing with him. I had the same statement, a statement that was the same thing you just were getting to, Tom. But I, I was just wondering how deep does a patent go? Like, does it go to the to the sauce, like to the recipe, to the to the soil and, and, and nutrients and, and and like the you know, as we were talking before about appellation or, or before, you know, it's always a topic. Uh, you know, how deep is the patent go for cannabis? It really depends on what you're trying to protect. If you're just trying to protect um, a new cross then um, you certainly are supposed to describe where and how you grew it and so on and let's but but um, the you're, you're not required to to recite all the soil conditions and you're certainly not limited to those soil or grow conditions for protection on the other hand let's suppose that you find that there's a particular way of growing something that makes one terpene just go off the charts and that's what you want to patent you want to patent Hey, I've found a way to make one terpene really dominant in a lot of different genetic backgrounds. 
then if, if that is a cultivation technique, you'd have to go into a lot of detail about that cultivation technique, and you'd have to show that you really can do that in a bunch of different genetic backgrounds. But if you could, and it really was new, you, you may well be, probably would be able to get a patent on that. Thanks. Yeah, but then how much are patents worth? That's something that I also want to make sure that when I'm talking to growers, because uh, I didn't know, I've been advising them the opposite. Like, ah, oh, you can't get it patented. Hold the presses. Dale says we can do it. He's got a JD from Berkeley and a PhD from the University of California, San Diego. I think we can do it. Um, so that's great. I mean, that's yeah. uh, a, a huge sigh of relief to so many operators that are coming online thinking they're going to have proprietary genetics that are worthwhile. Yeah, and how much patents are worth really is, it's a hard question to answer unless you, you can look at some data points. And so there's this company called EBU, E-B-B-U, that amassed a pretty decent uh, collection of patents. They weren't on plants specifically, but they were on uh, related to cannabis, I think some genetic things. And they were purchased by Canopy Growth for $330 million and pretty much the only asset they had, well, the major asset they had was their patent portfolio. And they didn't have, I mean, they, they had, I think, a few dozen patents. So wow. that's one sign that, all right, if, if your patents occupy the right space and there's a lot of value around them, people do uh, value that. I think Canopy was looking for a way to get into the IP business and jump into the deep end of it. And that's, so that's one transaction that happened. Um, just as another example from another industry, I, I worked with a startup company that started when they had just one patent application that was pending that they licensed from a university. They did a lot more R&D and we put together a nice patent portfolio for them. And a few years later, maybe four or five years later, they did an IPO in, in um, an initial public offering that raised about $120 million. And again, that was almost all the value. It was almost all of that value came from their patent portfolio. Um, one other way to look at it is Let's suppose you look at, let's say, some really valuable cannabis variety that everybody uses, everybody loves, everybody grows, and you look at what it would be worth now if somebody could, could rewind and get a patent on that. And, and one thing, I, I just want to say this, a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's really important. I was talking to somebody about patenting plants, and they said, doesn't that just limit access? And in my experience, it actually makes the access more available because... Um, when someone has something really special that um, is easy to copy, they are actually going to be pretty cautious, at least in many cases, they're going to be pretty cautious about letting people grow that, letting people have access to it. On the other hand, I've got clients that have um, some really special varieties of fruits and flowers that are licensed all over the world. They're accessible in so many markets because since they have patent protection, they're willing and able to make deals around that without losing all the value. And they hmm. take a relative, pretty modest royalty in order to be able to take advantage of that large scale. And so if you, let's say you have a medicinally really important plant, I think having like IP protection on it makes, <laughs> yeah, or, it's certainly like cannabis. Let's, let, I was thinking of if you had one that had one variety of cannabis, that had great, great value. Like a Charlotte's um, web. If you, if you didn't, yeah, if you didn't patent it, you'd be always stressing about who's growing it and what they're doing with it. If you did patent it, you could license it out as widely as you wanted. And, and you would know, as long as you did it right, the licensing has to be done correctly, but you'd know that you're still going to be in control of that and that it's not going to have a bunch of counterfeits and a bunch of 
of um, uh, unauthorized, a bunch of pirated plants out there. So yeah. um, uh, it's, I think the, the potential for abuse comes if you're charging a ridiculously high license rate, but yeah. that's where the market comes in and pushes back on it. And I think that if you charge a fair license rate, that patenting really does make plants like this more available to the public. You know, as we, oh, go ahead, Tom. Oh, no, no. That was going to be like a, an anecdote that's related to the original question of how much is a plant patent worth for your particular cannabis? It's it's a lot like how much is your copyright worth? So your copyright mm. for like the movie uh, Gone with the Wind, way up here. Well, maybe now, of course, it's gone down. But for decades, people yeah. wanted to see Gone with the Wind. Now, I'm sure that there was also a movie made around 1939, Reefer Madness way less money right like nobody wants to see that it's, if they want to see it they want to laugh at it they don't want to pay to see that it's a piece of crap you know and so it, it depends on like what type of market intangibles that go beyond the patent itself the qualities of the plant or or the marketability of the, or how yeah. how the market because uh, like cookies as a marketing strategy worked really really well and so it would have inflated the value of that patent well the brilliant thing about cookies the okay. value Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say cookies because uh, Tom is, is cookies is such a good brand and that has patent. Uh, they had a store here in in Washington. So just now, recently, they they had their first pot shop in Tacoma. Uh, but before that, they had a, a clothing store, and that's what I mean about this roundabout way that these brands seem to be be creating their identity uh, is through lifestyle. And then from there, it's like, hey, let's uh, white label uh, a cannabis farm somewhere. Um, one question for you, Dell, though, is uh, do you think, uh, because talking about phenomes and uh, uh, crossbreeds, it's all very complicated, especially to your non, even like the can the canisores, or they just want to know like notes of whatever. They don't, you know, Limon, they don't care for a lot of things. But are you familiar with the Galaxy program of Phylos? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you think that would be, that's it's a great way for like the layman to see how things kind of exist, like crossbreeding, Blue Dream, Snoop Stream. You know, there's this great like visual I think out there for people to understand the importance of uh, identifying like breeding and and how it works. Yeah, um, and I think um, I, I don't want to get into the um, you know all the 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 problems that arose with phylos, but the, the original oh, no. concept. Of, yeah. Yeah. The original concept of showing where all these relatedness, how related things are and what they're related to super, super interesting and intriguing and valuable. And I think a lot of people still uh, take advantage of it. I just thought it was a beautiful program. If Tom, if you ever get a chance to look at this, uh, the galaxy, I don't know if the website's still up. I mean, they had such a, you can, it was almost like a, a virtual reality experience. Really? It's yeah. just all the genetic uh, lineages linked together? Yeah, it's, it's, you, you, come up with, you come up with some kind of a score to um, indicate the genetic identity of one thing, and then you compare that score with the genetic identity of another thing along multiple axes so that you, you can project it into, like, into 3D and space. And you could do that. I mean, it, it all part of it depends on the assumptions that you put into building that score. And um, there are different ways to do that. I've heard people say that the galaxy isn't even necessarily the best depiction of it, but it was the first and it's visually very appealing. 
and it, it does help people at least at least visualize okay these things have seem like they're pretty close to each other and these things are are less close um, so I think that I, I think there is um, there's a lot of value in, in just beginning to understand how diverse I think part of that is people don't even begin to appreciate how diverse cannabis is because no most it's, of what we have yeah. access to yeah is not it's coming from i wrote an article about the founder effect and um the fact that if most commercial cannabis has a limited number of ancestors then even if there are a lot of different forms of it it's still a limited slice of the overall uh gene pool that, that could be available and if you start to bring in a lot of land races and a lot of um exotic genetics from all over the world you're, you're going to begin to see how much more diversity there is that, that, that could be expressed in commercial cannabis. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, and it's one of those things that now, because of technology, you're able to accelerate that. Uh, but I wanted to turn this conversation away from the highly technical aspect of how we could use the cannabis genome to hack, you know, creating new novel strains, because uh, I think we've kind of beaten a dead horse with the patentability and turn back to the trademark and how Miggy was explaining how that cookies began as a T-shirt brand. And then for some reason, now it's back end into retail. Not cookies, so, that was stars, but cookies started out with Burner's stores in, in, uh, um, in Southern California. So Burner actually had a retail outlet or Burner just had like a strain that he got some rappers to yell cookies about. He had a grow. He had a, he was, he worked his way as a, uh, from a bud tender to uh, owner of a, of a grow, but dab stars, the one here in Washington started as a t-shirt and now they've got products all over the nation, the nation. Well, that's why I wanted to ask Dale about, all right, let's talk about the limitations then of trademarks and where you might be able to get mark protection, but not, and then where that limitation line is for when you're trying to do cannabis, because cannabis is a large concept and we know that it's illegal, so you can't legally use it in use, but then that concept gets into like, kind of like more first amendment creative type rights where because like cookies has a particular font that they use. So, uh, Dale, what are some of the hacks that people use to still try to protect their their idea of a cannabis brand, knowing they can't get a, a trademark for a cannabis brand? Well, I think they, they do a combination of things that we've kind of touched on already, which is, um, first of all, they, they certainly they do good marketing and they, they uh, establish good common law rights that, that would that would correlate with brand recognition, customer uh, recognition and appreciation. And then another really important thing, even if all you're focused on is your common law rights, you've got to police that mark. You've got to, you've got to make sure that other people who start using it get a cease and desist letter and they're told, hey, that's our, that's our mark. Here are our rights. And you can do that even with a, with a common law right. I, I had a client that that got a, a letter like that not too long ago. And we looked at the person's rights and they had a state trademark and a common law trademark. And then they had a federal mark on some related goods. And it added up to enough that, that my client had decided, okay, we're a new company. We're going to rebrand instead of um, spending all of this, all of our early stage money fighting this case. So part of it is um, establishing great, brand recognition and customer loyalty, which comes from having good products, good customer service. Part of it is really staying on top of what's out there and being, if you become aware that someone else is using the mark, you let them know they need to stop. And of course, you've got to have a case for that. You've got to be able to have evidence that you've been using it longer and that their use really would cause confusion um, with, with your mark. 
And so that's part of it is wherever you, however you establish the rights, whether it's just common law, whether it's state, or whether it's some com kind of combination of those with federal where available, um, you create that, but then you, you really carefully uh, make sure that, that you maintain that exclusivity of it. Dale, yeah, I got I got two things for you guys. Uh, one, I want to take yeah. have your, hear your take on uh, um, the gorilla glue and how how people are going to get confused that you're smoking cannabis and glue are two different things. But uh, check this out that I'm smoking. I just realized we're talking about cookies. So this 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 is cookies, but it's not cookies. It's got a fortune cookie on it. So do you think this could be a lawsuit from this grow funky monkey, <laughs> but from cookies to these guys? Like, hey, uh, just because you got a fortune cookie on there doesn't mean. Uh, it's you know it i mean again you're not gonna get confused though it's not the font it's not the anything but the words yeah a lot of people think if i if i make mine look like a parody of the other one then i'm going to be fine and that's actually not a good defense in trademarks um we've seen uh i like the gorilla glue people had to change their mark um and that's even though the glue is so is they actually like the, the legit because like there are there is no i mean a gorilla glue is a schedule one and it's it's a very popular uh you know gorilla glue four uh, and so they were marketing their their strain with the the mark of the actual gorilla glue company the crazy glue company and again crazy glue again this is another brand i just don't know like super glue also maybe have been in a brand but it's the same concept it's gorilla glue it's just a, a adhesive and so that adhesive company in real life sued the Gorilla Glue gene holders and told them to stop using their stuff? I believe that's what happened. Now, that's not something I've researched, but I read, I recently read an article about it. So I, I, I'm probably not any better informed on that than most people. But there is, so with typical trademark infringement, you have to be in the same class of goods and services and you have to be causing confusion with the same group of of potential customers some marks become so well known or so, so famous that they can bring an action for so-called what's called trademark dilution and that means that, that you can go outside your normal class of goods and services and say what you're doing hurts our mark because it looks our mark is so well known that it looks like we've given you permission or that you're somehow affiliated with us and you need to stop doing you need to stop using this mark not because it's in our same class of goods and services, but because it is diluting the strength of our of our very strong mark. And so that's that's a very fact specific analysis, and um, it's certainly not always available. But you know, if you have a uh, a really well known product, and someone looks like they're kind of adopting the same language, and especially if they're using the same colors and the same font and everything, mm. then it really does. Um, it fits that that scenario where you would be you'd appear to be trading on another mark's well-known public recognition, and that's uh, that's not okay without a license. And that's why you'll see that more in the in I think the black market, the the traditional markets. Like I know in Washington during the dispensary days, you know all these guys are doing something illegal anyways, but then they the package to look like you know <laughs> little candy bars, Kit Kat bars, or whatever the case may be. Uh, well, why not? I mean, what are you going to do? Take me to jail for doing a well, schedule, but, <laughs> you know, come to my house and yeah, get me. <laughs> that's when you're, you're thinking trademark infringement is not my biggest problem here. Right. Um, that reminds me a little bit of I when I was um, kind of adding cannabis to my practice, because I've been a patent longer patent attorney longer than I've been working in cannabis. I went to a seminar where 
one of the people that was talking about the cannabis industry said, all right, uh, people are going from having to just worry about the DEA to having to worry about all these different tax agencies, all these different regulatory groups. They're going to wish for the good old days when they only had one legal enforcement agency to deal with because now they're in they're in the, the regulated market and it's it's very very regulated and there are a lot of hoops to jump through I, I will agree but i will also you know condition that agreement on saying uh the dea comes in with paramilitary weapons you know guns they'll bust down your door yeah um, the cease and desist letter comes from a nice asshole litigator like me. And then, uh, and then, it, then we file an action, then we get service, then we serve discovery. And then we haul you in front of a judge and be like, this guy's bad. You know, um, that is credit. Yeah. But that that's due process. At least <laughs> you're not coming in, taking kicking down their door, maybe shooting somebody or their dog, taking all their shit. And then saying they're going away to prison for many, many years. You know, uh, I, I much yeah, you're prefer. Exactly right about that. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. but yeah. now you have operational risks, and uh, the plant will still sell itself. But now you have to play by the rules. You know. Exactly. Yeah, and I've got I've got some clients and really good friends in the industry that have been on both sides of that. That they actually did get locked up for the plant, and. Um, as much as they don't like the tax burdens and all the, the hoops they have to jump through, um, they're certainly, I think they're, they really like that they not only can make some legal money, but they are now beginning to build a legacy yes, and, and to make a name for themselves. And that's, that's, it's nice to see people being able to, to um, uh, reach that stage uh, after decades of, of kind of a riskier life. It's yeah. not easy, like owning a restaurant or any other self business that you're gonna do. Except now, you, you know, you you still have to have the rules. You have to buy the regulations. You have to do the stuff you have to do as an adult to help the world around you. If you're gonna be a businessman, if you're gonna be that person, yeah, that's the game. I mean, but then at least they're able to play it more and more now. I mean, they still aren't able to play it as much as you know the insurance game is. But cannabis is going to be so much more local than insurance because insurance is all about contracts and like a vault of money so that you can make payouts based upon what your actuarial tables say that you're going to are going to be your payouts that year. Um, it's it's entirely different when the product is a horticultural product that needs to be cared for for about five months and harvested and processed. Sure, uh, you know, we get a lot of apples and bananas from all over the world. Uh, I don't know if cannabis is going to turn into apples and bananas or it's going to be more along the lines of uh, beer, locally made. People take pride in stuff that comes from their area. Yeah. I believe you're going to see some of both. I think that there are going to be certain forms of cannabis and certain consumers that um, that just do best when they're locally grown, whether they're grown indoors or, or outdoors. But I think there will also be some premium kinds that, um, you know, if you're growing outdoors organically in Humboldt County or something like that, or Mendocino County, and now you can sell that stuff all over the world, there's going to be tremendous demand. You got to take care of it. You got to make sure that it ships well, but the, the demand is going to be off the charts. Off the charts because you have like Appalachians. It's like, Oh, I got yeah. that Peoria weed. Right. Get the fuck out of here with your Peoria weed. Oh, I got that Humboldt, you know, and that's why. So even if it was, well, no, I guess if it's worldwide legal, 
the price is still going to be off the charts. So there's the opportunity for, you know, criminal operations to come in and try to take that. But um, I, I don't know of any money laundering that's going on in the wine industry. I know that wine industry has got a lot of money in it and it's highly capitalized. But, you know, I, don't, I also don't live in the Humboldt County or like wine country area. Do you guys know if. Uh, uh, well, and this is this okay. is actually let me just I just want to chase down that thought real quick. Yeah. Um, this yeah. is actually one of the, the real interesting analogies between cannabis and wine, though. Um, there are certain appellations of wine and there are certain wine varieties that, you know, there you, you can only um, give something a certain name if it came from a certain region and has that particular genetics behind it in wine. But let's say you've got a variety that grows great in Bordeaux, France. There are some other climates around the world where that same variety is going to grow equally well or, or comparably well, maybe not equally well, but same ballpark. And there's going to be develop a, a, a local appellation for that variety in those other geographies. And what we're working on in cannabis right now is to identify um, the like the growing conditions that are especially suitable for a particular outdoor plant that is just a masterpiece kind of production. And then look for other climates as the world market opens up. We're looking for other places with a very similar climate zone, similar soil or mm. or something like that, so that you're never going to be making um, Humboldt grown, sun grown. But you might be able to take somebody who's bred that and made it really special for there and that we could license that to be grown in other parts of the world where if someone wants a local outdoor produced uh, product, they could we could correlate the genetics that like a certain kind of um, a certain kind of environmental setting and put it in places with, with similar uh, climates. Those genetics, do they come down to the mother or do they come down to the seed? Like, can you take a seed, grind it up and then have a DNA profile? Cause you're, you got a unique position as a, a biologist as well in law. So can you see that kind of difference in the seed as far as the genetics go? Yeah. I mean, a lot of that depends. So, if let's say that what you've protected is you've protected a stable seed line, um, then there's always going to be a little bit of variability, uh, but you're going to see a similar, um, I'd say a similar range of genetic variability within the seed line or else it wouldn't be stable. It wouldn't be stable from one generation to the next. That usually comes from a lot of back crossing and a lot of interbreeding so that there's, there's not, so you've eliminated a lot of that variability. On the other hand, if you have um, a clonal variety, then you'd always do the DNA testing on the clone and not on the seed. Cool. I don't know if that does that make sense? Yeah, that's totally what I was looking for. Okay. Great. Dale, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can we go to find and follow what you guys got going on at Plant and Planet uh, Law Firm? Well, I'll drop three different websites because they're all different and they're all important. First one is plantandplanet.com. That's, our, web, that's our, our law firm website. The second one is my blog, plantlaw.com. And the third one is a startup company that I've got going. It's really an extension of the law firm. It's meant to help independent cannabis breeders who not only want protection for their stuff, but also want help finding good licensees all over the world. And that's called Breeders Best. Nice. Um, so uh, Breeders Best is something we're really excited about and proud of. Um, Many of you have heard of Dr. Ethan Russo. He's our medical director. Oh, wow. Bob Clark, who wrote all the books on cannabis ethnobotany, is our director of, of botany and horticulture. So 
it's a it's a really cool company. It's new, uh, but we're we're working on doing great things for cannabis breeders all over the world. That's awesome. That is awesome. Thank you so much again for coming. I know you're on a road trip, so we're not going to take up too much of your time, but thanks for joining us and thanks for tuning in, everyone. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all cannabis legalization news. We'll see you on Wednesday. Thank you. Take care. See you.